Hello and welcome to the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and River Disorder Society. My name is Hugo Morales, and for this podcast edition, we're pleased to have Dr. Pedro Barbosa, neurologist and movement disorder specialist. Dr. Barbosa conducted several studies in the Reta Lana Western Institute of Neurological Studies, Department of Clinical Movement Disorder and Neuroscience, University College London, and he is very interested in the clinical and neurobiological characteristics of impulsive and compulsive behaviors and Parkinson's disease. Thanks, Pedro, for joining us today. Thank you, Hugo. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm just going to take the opportunity to use your expertise in this topic to ask you a couple of questions before going into more detail of your paper. I wonder if you can tell us first what content is and how these behaviors were described initially in Parkinson's disease. The P is that sometimes they can escape the diagnostic recognition by neurologists. To give you uh, some context, Pudding was initially described among individuals addicted to amphetamine, both in Sweden and California in the early 70s. And the paper from Sweden, which is from 1973, actually was studying amphetamine psychosis. And the authors were trying to identify amphetamine psychosis before they developed. And they described a behavioral abnormality, which was quite common among amphetamine addicts, which is characterized by complex, stereotyped, non-goal-orientated behavior, which could be continuous sorting, handling, manipulation of objects, tinkering with electronic equipment, pointless driving, walkabouts, hoarding behavior, and etc. The paper from California, actually, they found this behavior in one quarter of all patients addicted to amphetamine. It's interesting because the term bonding was initially coined in Sweden, and it could be translated to blockhead. When you think about Parkinson's disease, the first description was published in 1994 by Friedman. So he described a 65-year-old male PD patient who started shuffling and sorting papers senselessly for hours and hours and also singing uncontrollably. And this was quite dramatic because it happened immediately after an increase in levodopa. As soon as they decreased levodopa back to the previous dosage, their behaviors were completely gone. Interesting. So we learned from these studies and observations of patients use amphetamines. They started to develop these normal behaviors that may look like an exaggerated normal or repertoire movement. And it's telling because all these drugs that can enhance the dopaminergic system. But I wonder about, about the phenomenology in Parkinson's disease, and especially with pondling, the context in which these patients develop the behaviors. Is it just any movement, any especially specific motor behavior? Do they tend to recapitulate what they used to do in the past, or is it something new? Oh, that's quite an interesting point because funding tends to be idiosyncratic. So previous hobbies or occupations or anything that the patient used to do. So some motor programs from previous routines can be incorporated into the funding routine. 
And this can be simple or more complex, but it's interesting to notice that bonding is, is meaningless. It can appear to be purposeful, but it's not. So for instance, if you have a musician that has a large collection of CDs, the punding behavior could be sorting CDs the whole night. And in the morning, he would end up with chaos and nothing organized. So a writer could spend hours writing words devoid of meaning, actually, and so on. So one of the classic descriptions is a seamstress that would organize buttons the whole night which was published by Professor Lee's group actually before. And just out of interest, when these patients uh, are pounding, are in their best mode response, or they can be either off or on, or this or doesn't matter? A great question. Actually, they tend to be on, and also pounding has been associated with dyskinesis. There is a higher proportion of patients with pounding presenting with dyskinesis. Also, you have to be suspicious of patients with binding if they are on higher doses of dopamine treatment, because if you look into the prevalence of binding, previous studies have shown that approximately two to four percent of patients in a general population of PD patients have binding behavior. But if you look into individuals with a high uh, dosage of dopamine replacement therapy, the prevalence actually goes all the way up to 14%. And these are individuals using more than 800 levodopa equivalent units per day of dopamine replacement therapy. And the same topic of the phenomenology funding. I wonder if there's any difference between men and women in the way they do this funding. Have you seen any differences in the, the patients you have studied? Yes. So several authors have reported that uh, there is a, a difference between male and female patients. So male patients would dismantle electronic equipment, work with tools at home, while women would spend more time in organizing, tidying up, which is quite difficult to ascertain if this is biochemical or cultural, actually. Because as we said before, body is actually motor programs from before or motor routines being repeated excessively because of dopaminergic stimulation. With this repetitive and complex behaviors, are they really successful in the task? Are they actually completing the task properly or they have deficits underlying the, these motor tasks? Yeah, that's quite interesting because one of the ways that helps you identify a behavior responding is that it usually tends to leave chaos behind. Tidying up never tides up the place, actually. So patients spend the whole night tidying up the place, but they end up leaving a big mess. There are a few patients that used to be construction workers that started to break the walls just to check where the wiring was placed and actually pretending to be renovating the home, but actually never, never ending the renovation. And it's quite common also for patients to dismantle electronic equipment and never assemble the back together. So that's an interesting point that the clinician can always look for. If chaos is left behind, it's a non-productive activity, it's probably pending. Yeah, that's a good clinical pointer. In your study, you and your co-authors 
It compared Parkinson's disease patient with polling and autism and without it, and just emphasizing the neuropsychiatric aspect, namely mood disorders and frontal cognitive function. Tell us what you find in this study. Well, the problem is that there's too much we don't know about bonding. So we had the opportunity to assess 21 PD patients with bonding behavior and compare them with 26 patients with excessive hobbies, no bonding behavior. We also compared a control group of 25 PD controls without bonding or any other impulsive compulsive behaviors. So. What we found was increased anxiety levels in patients with bonding and hobbism. And if you look into patients with bonding, actually, there was a higher burden of motor symptoms measured by the UPD RS3 and worse frontal lobe function compared to excessive hobbism. Frontal function was actually measured with the frontal assessment battery. We also did the Montreal cognitive assessment. So as with any paper, these findings need to be replicated by other studies. But the interesting thing is that what appears to separate uh, these patients with excessive hobbies from funding is the frontal dysfunction. If you allow me to diverge a little bit to the nomenclature, because we talk about impulsive compulsive behaviors and some clinicians also, when they will go to PubMed to study, they will see sometimes impulse control disorders, dopamine dysregulation syndrome. So there are a few behavioral abnormalities in Parkinson's disease that are a consequence of the use of dopaminergic replacement therapy. And this falls into two categories. The first is the impulse control disorders, which are hypersexuality, pathological gambling, compulsive shopping, and eating. And they have the behaviors that fall on the compulsive side of the spectrum, which is dopamine dysregulation syndrome, addiction to levodopa tablets, and pudding behavior, which what we are talking about. So impulse control disorders are more frequently seen with the use of dopamine agonists, especially the oral non-ergolinic agonist, which tends to be also very strong dopaminergic D3 receptors agonists. While the compulsive behaviors, they are more associated with a medication that stimulates dopaminergic D1 and D2 receptors, such as levodopa and apomorphin. This is a major difference between the behaviors. Usually, the way the brain signals a rewarding activity is by shifting dopamine release into the nuclear accumbens, which is part of the ventral striatum. The nuclear accumbens has connections with the prefrontal cortex. So too much dopamine in the nuclear accumbens will signal a reward, and at the same time, through dopaminergic inhibitory connections, will decrease the input from the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex task is to shift attention to another activity. So too much dopamine, it's a reward. Also, the prefrontal cortex will leave the brain to enjoy that rewarding activity for a while. So if you have too much dopamine, the prefrontal cortex input will be reduced. And also, if you're already on the top of 
uh, reduce frontostriatal inhibition, which we found in our patients with PANDIN. This could explain PANDIN behavior. So it's too much dopamine in a frontal, prefrontal cortex, perhaps that is already not in the best shape, let's say. So this could be the main mechanism behind PANDIN behavior. So this is highly relevant for clinical practice. I think also based on what you have found in your previous studies, it seems to be a police act pathophysiology in this bonding mechanism and different from the impulse control disorders based on the segregation of the pathways. And what you mentioned is that the ventral pathway with the nucleus accumbens being hyperdopaminergic and then having an effect on the prefrontal cortex and then the prefrontal cortex don't work in that well to prevent repetitive behavior or stop signals. This is very interesting. I guess the other question that is relevant as well for a clinical practice is how patients with Pontine should be managed in terms of medical therapy and what is the long-term outcome of these patients? One other thing that I think it's important when you are suspicious that your patient has Pontine is to have a high index of suspicion. It's quite common for patients to under-report and not only pending, but all impulse control disorders and also dopamine dysregulation syndrome. And there's probably many factors to explain this. Lack of insight is probably one important factor. Patients fail to associate the behavior with Parkinson's or the treatment. Concealment, embarrassment. The clinician needs to have a high index of suspicion, particularly in patients with dyskinesias and on high doses of dopaminergic replacement therapy. If you look into treatments, there are no randomized clinical trials to guide the treatment here. But what we know from many reports before is that the most important point is to reduce dopamine replacement therapy. One way to start doing this is to stop rescue doses, which has been suggested by many authors because... These patients are at high risk of dopamine dysregulation syndrome as well. So if you stop rescue doses, it's a good beginning. But most of them will need further reduction in the amount of treatment they are receiving. What I usually do is I try to clean up or maybe simplify the treatment regime. And I tend to try to reduce or stop dopamine agonists, even though dopamine agonists are associated with impulse control disorders. We know from patients with dopamine dysregulation syndrome that reducing dopamine agonists is an effective measure to improve the behavior, and also it helps reducing the total amount of dopaminergic replacement therapy. And then you can simplify levodopa regime. You can also review if a patient is on apomorphine, try to avoid rescue doses of apomorphine. Not every patient in the world has apomorphine yet. Another important thing that needs to be considered is selegiline. Selegiline is a malinhibitor that has amphetamine-like metabolites. And as we saw before, amphetamine has been associated with pundin-like behavior. So if possible, if your patient uses selegiline, stop selegiline as well. Remember that. And then we go to the antipsychotics. Mm, there are contradictory data, actually. The only antipsychotic that's been reported to improve funding is quetiapine. 
And this was done actually after the reduction of dopamine replacement therapy was not successful, either because the patients were already, let's say, uh, motor symptoms were too prevalent. So because of motor handicap, and you can use quetiapine then to allow the patients to remain on the same medication. So there are case reports of improvements, but there are also, I think, a couple of case reports of the patients developing pandi on quetiapine. But this could be a coincidence since patients were already using high doses of dopamine treatment. Another contradictory drug is amantadine. Amantadine has been correlated with impulse control disorders in a large study, but also there are quite a few reports of amantadine improving pathological gambling and impulse control disorders. Medication-wise, I think the main goal is to reduce dopamine replacement therapy. If your patient gets too uh, impaired, you can also use quetiapine. And also remember to involve family members and carers. The other question, and this is also along the lines of management. In these patients where you have done everything, adjusting medication, telegulin adjustment, or preventing the use of this, it's extremely useful. But what about continuous dopaminergic therapy with either apomorphine infusion, with levodopa intestinal gel infusion, or even deep brain stimulation? Have you had experience with these therapies in patients with punting? Yes. Uh, so interesting question. We know more about the impulse control disorders and dopamine dysregulation syndrome. In theory, if you provide a more continuous stimulation of dopamine receptors that can be achieved by infusion therapies such as apomorphine and duodopa intestinal gel, dopamine could be less reinforcing. This could probably be beneficial in patients with pudding, but we lack the data. When I was in the UK working with Professor Tom Warner, I actually had a few patients who used apomorphine which started all the way back with Professor Andrew Lees as well. So they tend to improve, actually, all impulse-compulsive behaviors. We saw apomorphine is actually more associated with planting behavior. But if you do provide a continuous stimulation and you reduce the total amount of medication that you receive, they actually benefit from improved impulse-control disorders, dopamine dysregulation syndrome, and planting. But I have to say... My impression is that you have to reduce the total amount of dopamine replacement therapy they're getting. And regarding the deep brain stimulation, it could be effective. It has been shown that in a long-term scenario, despite subthalamic nucleus deep brain stimulation increasing impulsivity in the immediate post-op after operation, in the medium or long-term scenario, the patients tend to improve the impulsive-compulsive behaviors because they are able to reduce significantly the total amount of medication they receive. Now, just for future research in clinical studies, what are the questions that remain unanswered in hunting in patients with Parkinson's disease? We had the opportunity to look into the long-term scenario of individuals with all types of impulse-control disorders, impulsive-compulsive behaviors, actually. And we found that uh, despite early reports of a significant improve in impulse control disorders in a medium-term scenario, if you look into a longer-term scenario, a high proportion of patients remain symptomatic. However, nearly all of them improve. 
So the behaviors are, are no longer as disruptive as they were. But as much as 50% of patients with dopamine dysregulation syndrome and impulsive compulsive behaviors in general could be uh, symptomatic in a long-term scenario. But we still need more data on the long-term scenario. So this is one of the unanswered questions. The other questions about funding is why some individuals develop funding and others not. And this can also extrapolate to every impulsive compulsive behavior in Parkinson's disease. So what we know, there is a strong association with dopamine replacement therapy, but not all individuals will develop funding. And what is the relationship between funding and dyskinesias as well? Is funding akin to dyskinesias, meaning that dyskinesias is an excessive simplified motor program that originates in the dorsal striatum and is funding excessive complex uh, motor program that originates in a different part of the brain. We also need to understand the other neurotransmitters. What are the, the roles for the other neurotransmitters? Because when we talk about dopamine, this is a simplification. Dopamine is the main neurotransmitter in the dopaminergic reward system. But these have input from many other neurotransmitters, such as opioids, serotonin, even cannabinoid systems. So uh, that's quite an interesting uh, topic because it makes you wonder about voluntary control, <laughs> uh, free will as well, and how patients can have a dramatic shift in personality or behaviors. I'm not talking only about burning, but all other impulsive compulsive behaviors. And what's happening to the brain of these people? We need more awareness of impulsive compulsive behaviors. We need more studies as well. But hopefully, uh, with time, this will come. I'm pretty sure after listening to this interview, or listeners in research will have uh, more interest in this topic. It certainly will spark more ideas for research. But I would like to thank you again, Pedro, for sharing your insights into the phenomenology and futures of funding of Parkinson's disease. Well, I appreciate the invitation. It's really been a delight to, to talk to you. I invite our listeners to go read the paper, Neuropsychiatric Features of Punding and Obism in Parkinson's Disease in this January issue of Movement Disorders Clinical Practice and to stay alert for the upcoming episodes of the MDS podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website. <laughs>